Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I'm Professor Gordon Flake, the CEO of the Perth US Asia Centre at the University of Western Australia in Perth, Australia. It is my great honour to participate in and to welcome you today to this third in the series of Asia Undercurrent webinars presented by the Nikkei, uh, the Government of Japan, and powered by Nikkei Asia. Uh, this has been a wonderful series helping us understand uh, as it implies the developments in the region. In today's webinar, it is focused specifically on a very timely topic, that is North Korea sanctioned summit and strategic weaponry. How should the international community deal with North Korea? Now, I appreciate the alliteration between sanctioned summitry and strategic weaponry, but the truth is in the 30 odd years that I've been working on North Korea, North Korea has always been in the headlines. Uh, because there's a broad range of issues that has demanded international attention, in addition to nuclear weapons and missiles and, and high-profile symmetry. There's been an intense focus on the human rights situation inside North Korea, looking at the situation from Japan, deep concern about the fate of Japanese citizens who have been abducted into North Korea, uh, concerns on the diplomatic level uh, in terms of how the international community uh, should deal with this country, which at one point was a fissure in the Cold War and once again seems to be a growing fissure uh, in, in a world of diplomacy and high stakes things. But on top of that, um, there is a whole range of other issues. You know, the, the question of a third generation succession in a communist country, uh, the, the fact that even in popular culture, uh, Squid Game, which the entire world seems to be watching on uh, Netflix, has now been brought into the debate with condemnations coming out of North Korea and others seeing Squid Game as an, an allegory for what's actually happening inside North Korea. Uh, one way or the other, uh, this is an issue that is important to Japan, it's important to the region, Northeast Asia, and increasingly it's important to the globe because of the implications it has for nuclear weapons, for missiles, for stability of the one, one of the most economically diverse and, and vibrant regions of the world. And so we're very fortunate to have, again, this Governor of Japan and Nikkei organized webinar to discuss these issues. Uh, the thing that makes it more fortunate still is the panel that we've assembled today. Uh, we're very fortunate to have three uh, speakers who have distinguished support of government in their careers, but also currently have positions that allow them to do deep dive analysis and understanding of North Korea and its implications for the region uh, and the international community. Uh, I will introduce our panelists first, and then we're gonna turn to them each for about eight minutes of opening comments uh, before going into a conversation. After that conversation, we're gonna have an opportunity for you watching this program to, to submit your own questions. If you look at your registration, registration page and slide down, there's, there's a link to Slido. You can submit questions via that Slido app. Uh, go ahead, just glance back at your email or the registration of the, the page there that you'll be able to find a, the access to that questioning function. Uh, so without further ado, let, let me introduce the tremendous panelists that we have with us today. Our, our first panelist is Dr. Sumi Terry. Uh, Sue has just recently moved over to take her current position as a, the newly appointed director of the Hyundai Motor Korea Foundation Chair at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, DC. I think many of you will know the Woodrow Wilson Center. Uh, she was previously at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, and has a long and distinguished career in the United States government, particularly in the intelligence community, giving analysis on the topic we're gonna to be talking about today. So we're delighted to have Sue with us. Thank you so much, Sue. We've also got uh, uh, Dr. Pak Won Bun, 
who is an associate professor at Ewha Women's University in Korea. Dr. Park also serves on the Republic of Korea Ministry of Foreign Affairs Advisory Committee uh, and, and is emerged as one of the leading voices on North Korea in South Korea. He was previously a professor at Handong University, served at the Korea Institute for Defense Analysis, and we look forward to his perspectives from Seoul. And last but certainly not least, for the home audience in, in Japan, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Narushige Michista, who's the vice president of GRIPS, the graduate or the National Graduate Institute on Policy Studies. Uh, Dr. Michita, Michita, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Narushige Michista has also served on the National Security Council, I'm sorry, the National Security Secretariat Advisory Board. Uh, and previously actually had a fellowship in Washington, DC when I was there at the Woodrow Wilson Center. So he'll have plenty in common with, the, with Dr. Terry on that front as well. Look, there's a lot of issues, as I mentioned in the introduction, that we need to discuss. Uh, our hope is to have a forward-leaning conversation so we can really kind of answer that question about how the international community can deal with North Korea. But to do that, we have to have a, a firm understanding of perspectives on this issue from Washington, from Seoul, and from Tokyo, the three countries most directly involved. Um, so I'd like to start off with our first panelist, if I could. I'm going to turn to, to Dr. Sumi Terry. Uh, Sue, you recently had a, a, a wonderful and well-received and analyzed uh, article in Foreign Affairs. I wonder if you might kind of set the framework for our discussion today from your perspective there at the Wilson Center. Thank you so much. Um, good evening, good morning. Thanks for inviting me to this very important discussion uh, we're having tonight. So with the Foreign Affairs articles, uh, it was really a good exercise just to do the whole review of what happened uh, with our Washington's North Korea policy over the years, or just dealing with North Korea. You know, Gordon, you said you, you've been dealing with North Korea for 30 odd years. I've been following a little bit less than that uh, period. I was following, you know, I've followed North Korea since 2001 uh, as an analyst. So it's been really, I guess, two decades. Um, I think you would agree, it's not an exaggeration to say North Korea is one of the most persistent, consistent, and intractable problems in US foreign policy. And there's a reason why in the intelligence community, we call North Korea the hardest of hard targets. But at the same time, I think, you know, Korea watchers would also agree that um, the regime is actually remarkably consistent. Um, it's consistent in terms of its long-term uh, overall strategic goals, even tactics-wise, I, I, I don't think we'll be too surprised um, because basically incapable of competing with economically flourishing South Korea, the North really has to rely on their, these strategic goals and methods, right? From their overall goal of seeking international acceptance of North Korea as a nuclear weapon state to brinkmanship tactics to really try to divide the allies, to, to gain leverage in negotiations, to gain concessions he seeks. There's a remarkable consistency um, to all of this. Uh, but regardless of that, the undeniable fact is that US and our allies, Japan and Korea, we, the international community has been decidedly un, unsuccessful uh, in restraining North Korea's nuclear ambitions, right? Four US administrations going back to the days of Clinton. Uh, in the early 1990s. We tried to deal with the North Korean threat through negotiations. There are a lot of them, right? Bilateral, which resulted in the 1994 agreed framework, multilateral through the six party mechanism in the Bush years, Obama strategic patience through maximum pressure, rocket men on a suicide mission, summitry on the President Trump. 
we've done it all. And here we are back at an impasse with North Korea. Actually, we're not only at an impasse. We can argue, I think one can argue that North Korean threat has only grown uh, as North Korea's nuclear, nuclear capability increased uh, in, in size and sophistication. So we're actually worse off today than three decades ago. North Korea today has a capability to hit anywhere in the continental United States with a nuclear tipped ICBM. North Korea has amassed up to 60 nuclear warheads, enough fissile material to build at least six new, uh, additional bombs per year. Uh, they continue to make major investments, in nuclear, missile, conventional weapons program, as well as asymmetrical capability like cyber warfare. Earlier this year, in the, uh, during the Eighth Party Congress, Kim Jong-un said himself that he's going to continue to modernize North Korea's nuclear program. And he's been doing exactly that, right? Just last month, on September 11th and 12th, North Korea tested long-range nuclear-capable cruise missile that evades ground-based radar detection by flying at very low altitudes. A few days later, they, they tested this new train-mounted ballistic missile delivery system, railroad mobile uh, launchers, which, which provide uh, mobility, right? And allows North Korea to hide these long-range missiles inside their, you know, how many tunnels? Many, many tunnels, right? And I believe North Korea is the only second country to confirm this basing mode after Soviet Union. Uh, later in the month, uh, they uh, launched a new hypersonic missile. Um, two days later, a new aircraft missile. So, and we've also, this is in addition to seeing renewed activity and construction activity at the uranium enrichment plant at Yongbyon, increasing their ability to produce highly enriched uranium by 25%. So all of this is also on top of the fact that, you know, North Korea is moving towards the next step, uh, placing multiple warheads on a single missile, which will allow to frustrate U.S. missile defenses. Um, so what are they doing? And with this testing campaign, I think Kim Jong-un is sending us a signal. They are trying to signal strength. They're trying to project power at home and abroad. Um, as, and it's getting geared to celebrate their 10th anniversary of Kim Jong-un coming into power. Um, and you know, I think this is particularly important for Kim because there he's facing many internal problems, right? This is, we are talking about food shortages. We know there are reports of severe food shortages and uh, continued lockdown due to COVID. So what do we do uh, going, uh, what that, that we have not done before? Where do we go from here? Particularly when I believe we, Washington is, we were facing far more capable adversary in Pyongyang than any of the, his four predecessors. And then, so now we got this, you know, policy review uh, that came out of the Biden administration after months long, and I'm trying to be not critical about it uh, because we know this is a hard problem. Uh, at least, you know, to be fair, they're trying to signal renewed U.S. commitment to the U.S. alliances with South Korea and Japan. They're coordinating very closely, so that's good. But much remains to be defined about Biden foreign policy, including his approach to North Korea, and that's a fact, right? He has a shoot of flashy summits, that's true. And he says, okay, we're not gonna, you know, we're gonna go, you know, we, we are going to do a, we're gonna strike a balance uh, between the, the Obama strategic patience and then Trump's all or nothing approach of this brand bargain. But in practice, we're not really getting anywhere because it's, uh, even though they say this is not this, this is not that, um, we're still not getting anywhere because Kim Jong-un has also insisted that he's not going to give up anything or he's not interested in returning to talks uh, unless United States make preemptive concessions first, uh, like lifting of sanctions 
and which the Biden administration is not going to do. Um, and Kim Jong-un basically has rejected Biden administration's outreach of willingness to meet anytime, you know, without preconditions. So unfortunately, I believe, you know, this current approach, we, we, it's insufficient to deal with North Korean threat because none of uh, other policies worked. Um, and it probably will be dealing with North Korea uh, at some point, escalating to greater provocations like, like launching new intercontinental ballistic missile or a submarine launched ballistic missile if the concessions now are not forthcoming and they're not forthcoming. An added complication is that the Biden administration is, of course, distracted with other crises from the fallout of the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, great power competition with China, you know, that's taking all the bandwidth, right? Iran, Russia, domestic issues, um, dealing with US economy, debt ceiling, infrastructure, and ongoing pandemic. Um, so I know my answers are what to do. I know I'm running out of time, so I'll, I'll move on. But uh, we can talk about what our options are. But my bottom line on this is, I believe reality of our options are to be very frank, limited. If our goal is still to achieve full denuclearization of North Korea. And there are whole reasons that I would like to get into later. Our limited options are limited because we can't do a preemptive strike. Our, lim our options are limited because while we should not give up on diplomacy, it's not going to really lead to any kind of breakthrough. Uh, and every uh, negotiation fell apart over verification. I think sanctions are, we should not be prematurely lifted, but I'm happy to talk about why it's also going to be a problem because Beijing is not enforcing them. And I, so I know I'm, this is sort of my opening remarks. I'll be happy to get into the more of the policy uh, points, but I wanted to sort of throw it out there for discussion that we can talk all we want, but our options are very limited, unfortunately. Well, Sue, thank you. That is both very sobering and, and unfortunately all too realistic. And it, it does help set the framework for the challenge that the international community faces. Um, we have a, a, a very new government in Japan, a relatively new government in the United States. Uh, and in Korea, we've got the opposite. We've got a president who's coming to the end of his five-year term um, and, and has had a lot of experience on this issue. And yet, I don't think that the, the, the challenge that's faced uh, immediately to the south of North Korea in South Korea is any, any better. So I'd like to turn now to, to uh, Wangon in, in, in Seoul to give us a sense uh, from, from the perspective of South Korea. So one gun over to you. All right, thank you, Gordon. And I already know that I pretty much shared the view with uh, Sumi. So I don't think I just repeat, uh, but I will elaborate a little bit further. And especially I'd like to focus on this very recent, the North Korean provocation, I think it's a really huge challenge not only to South Korea, but the United States and all over the world. I think uh, start with September, uh, they issued a series of statements and finally end up the Kim Jong-un himself, their speech at twice. I think uh, they have uh, at least three uh, kind of objectives. And first, they are trying to, I mean, North Korea is trying to justify their nuclear development by forcing South Korea to give up double standard. And this word of a double standard is the a kind of a new attempt by the North Korea start on September. And I just mentioned that North Korea has issued a series of statements by Kim Yo-jong, of course, uh, Kim Jong-un's sister, and Lee Tae-sung, Kim Sung, and uh, all those people. 
And also uh, Kim Jong-un's commemorative speech at Defense Development Exhibition on October 11th. And he also uh, reiterated the uh, doubles dealing and he said, quote, we will never ever tolerate but respond with a powerful action if they continue to infringe upon even our right to self-defense in the future, end quote. And also Kim Jong-un made a very similar speech on September 30th in his uh, uh, Supreme People's Assembly. And he raised one more time that the double dealing attitude that is so unfair and also hostile, hostile viewpoint of the end policies. So uh, he made a very clear that this is kind of precondition to have any meaningful dialogue with South Korea. And Kim Yo-jong even uh, explained about the, their military buildup and he warned South Korea and they, South Korea should not call it as a provocation. I think uh, overall North Korea's intention is pretty clear. North Korea forced South Korea and the United States not to condemn their illegal development of nuclear missiles. And if South Korea would follow the North Korea's demand, which is not to criticize or condemn North Korea's provocation, and it would be a de facto acknowledgement of North Korea as a nuclear weapon state. And so this is a very serious challenge. And second, I think North Korea is continue to enhance its weaponry by introducing so-called the five-year plan for the development of defense science and weapon system. And Kim Yo-jong introduced this existence of the five-year plan in her statement of September 15th. Before that, we didn't know that there is a, such a thing, the five-year plan. But as Sumi mentioned that in January, 8th Party Congress, Kim Jong-un introduced his plan to develop various top-notch weapons, but yet they did not mention about the plan. So if North Korea, now we are quite clearly seeing that they do have this plan, so it means that it is kind of institutionalized, and which means that it's going to be continued with uh, this plan. So North Korea already shows their intention and they actually launched the uh, super hypersonic missiles last month. So it seems to me at least for a while, I believe that at least at the end of, at the end of November at maximum, there is a possibility to continue this kind of provocation. I think uh, December is a very busy month for the North Korea because they are going to have a review in, in Korean they said Chonghua, a year for North Korea. And next year, there are two very important events such as Beijing Winter Olympic and on February and the South Korean presidential election on March. And North Korea would refrain provocation in this period and rather do so-called peace offensive. And third and final objective is to North Korea is trying to weaken the readiness of ROK-US alliance against North Korea threats by requesting to withdraw the hostile policy. You see, North Korea has continued to insist this withdrawal of hostile policy first as a kind of condition to have any meaningful dialogue with both United States and South Korea. And I just mentioned Kim Jong-un's commemorate speech at the Defense Development Exhibition on October 11th. He simply reiterate this kind of request. And, um, and the, actually this request has started in the, after break of the Hanoi summit in February, 2019. And, but the problem is that we don't know the exact contents of the hostile policy. Well, it can start with a permanent hold of joint military exercise of ROK-US alliance, and also a deployment of strategic assets by the United States to the Korean Peninsula. 
And also it can include the lifting of the economic sanctions and not to raise, raise a human right issue. And at the end, withdraw US forces in Korea and this solution of RKUS lies. So we have no idea exactly what kind of a hostile policy that North Korea has wanted to withdraw. So, but at least this moment, one thing clear though, is that North Korea is trying to weaken readiness of RKUS alliance against North Korean threat. And about the, uh, I'm gonna briefly mention about the Biden administration's North Korean policy. And well, in Korea and also the outside of Korea, some people raised that it's the Biden administration is simply back to the period of strategic patience. And that has been implemented by the Obama administration. Of course, uh, I don't think a Biden administration intentionally choose to strategic patience, but North Korea kind of make of it. North Korea has refused any kind of talk with the United States. And recently it is known that US has proposed the more you know, detailed uh, proposal to the North Korea, but simply they do not, there is any sign that North Korea has respond. So it makes the United States just wait and see. However, it is also true that North Korean policy is not the top priority of the Biden administration. And Sumi Terry already mentioned, indicate that. I think Biden administration is simply busy with other agenda. Of course, the top agenda is uh, United States-China China confrontation. So, so it seems to me that United States and Biden administration has chosen risk management of the peninsula rather than denuclearization of North Korea. Still, Biden administration does not appoint the ambassador to South Korea. So any uh, also um, special representative ambassador, Sung Kim has dual job now staying in the DC most of the time. But so I think it's a really a rather serious problem because time is not the US or the Korea side. As we have seen since May 2019, North Korea has continued to develop its missiles and produce more nuclear materials and weapons, especially the development of tactical nuclear missiles such as KN-23, 24, 30, and cruise missiles. That actually ordered by Kim Jong-un in January 8th, party Congress is a huge threat to South Korea, in some sense to Japan, because the missile defense system here in Korea is simply uh, could would not work for those missiles. So I think it can be a game changer, at least in Korean threats. Okay, running out of time, I'm gonna stop here and then we'll talk more in, in Q&A session. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Wangun, I appreciate it. Michi, I'm, I'm looking behind you. I see the beautiful image of the, the National Institute, Graduate Institute for Policy Studies behind you. Uh, that's an office I visited frequently and, and have not for the last two years. And so you're making me a little bit jealous. I wish I had a chance to visit Tokyo. Um, look, this is an issue that's going to be very important for the, the new government in, in Japan, as it has been for so many predecessors. Could you share us some of the, your insights uh, from a Japanese perspective? Sure, thank you very much. Uh, so the beautiful campus of uh, GRIPS is waiting for you. So uh, when time is ripe, uh, please come back and, uh, you know, Gordon, Wongon, Sue, you know, everybody, we have to get together and meet in Aeropongi, Tokyo. Mm -hmm. All right, thank you very much for the in, uh, introduction. I'll be, I would like to talk about a little bit about what Japan has been doing on the defense front and the diplomatic front and uh, uh, also, how I see the uh, current situation. So North Korea has been launching missiles, different ones. Now North Korea is launching missiles from trains, 
uh, North Korea is launching uh, a long-range uh, cruise missiles. Uh, North Korea might be testing a rudimentary version of uh, hypersonic weapons. Wow, impressive in a way. Um, and also there is a report that uh, uh, North Korea might uh, conduct a nuclear test again. So what is Japan uh, doing in order to uh, deal with this? So on the defense front, uh, Japan has been working on the uh, missile defense. Let me show, actually not many people might know exactly what Japan has been doing. So let me show this. So Japan has deployed two different types of uh, uh, basic missile defense systems, BMD, basic missile defense system. One is a uh, sea-based, uh, if you can look at the, you know, this, uh, destroyer, sea-based system, upper tier, exo-atmospheric system called the SM3, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, destroy the incoming missile in the space, outside the atmosphere. So go, the missiles, you know, ballistic missiles go outside the atmosphere into the outer space and the missile defense missiles will chase them <laughs> uh, into the space and uh, shoot them down there. And the other one is a ground-based system called the PAC-3, which is an endo-atmospheric system. Anyway, Japan has spent more than $20 billion. That's a lot of money. And we've been working very hard on these uh, missile defense capabilities. I think Japan has become a, a second only to the US in terms of uh, missile defense capabilities by now. A second measure that Japan has been taking is a civil uh, defense measures. And uh, the Japanese Diet enacted the civil protection law in 2004. And uh, based on that, uh, we have uh, deployed that, uh, installed two different uh, early warning systems, emergency network and JLRT. And uh, when North Korea was uh, uh, launching a large number of missiles in 2016 and 17, um, the uh, Japanese government decided to start conducting uh, civil defense. Uh, this is a, was the first time in history, um, uh, conducting a civil defense uh, training and exercises based on the missile attack scenario. Wow, interesting, right? So this is a defense uh, uh, things that we've been doing. And also actually the Japanese uh, self-defense force has been um, kind of uh, taking a look at what uh, North Korea has been doing in violation of the United Nations Security Council resolution. North Korea has been in conducting ship to ship transfers in the violation. So we take a look at it and you know, kind of uh, collect information, report it to the United Nations. And actually there are many different countries, including the United States, Australia, Canada, France, New Zealand, and uh, uh, you know, uh, also engaged in the same type of activity. So we are working hard to protect ourselves at, uh, and at the same time, you know, keep putting pressure on North Korea. We talk about, uh, you know, negotiation or dialogue, of course, those are important. But unless we have a, a good defense and pressure, any negotiation with North Korea wouldn't work. And we've been doing this for in the past decades, right? It hasn't worked too well. Uh, so, but anyway, we are trying to do it better, the job better. 
The second issue, diplomatic response that Japan has been taking. Um, North Korea, uh, I think um, Japan's, uh, we have an assumption, we don't talk about it too much, but our assumption is that uh, North Korea's most important policy objective is actually regime survival. And that they, uh, North Koreans would like to do so by defying military diplomatic pressure from outside and at the same time, normalize relations with the United States and Japan and uh, thereby obtaining economic sanctions. So um, that's why Japan suggested the big deal with North Korea back in 2002 when uh, then Prime Minister Koizumi visited uh, uh, Pyongyang and uh, you know, suggested if you, you know, address uh, missile, nuclear and abduction issues, we will be willing to normalize relations with you and uh, will be willing to provide a fairly large amount of economic assistance. And Japan has been very proactive on engaging with North Korea. You know, some people think that uh, uh, Prime Minister Abe was not uh, reluctant to engage with North Korea. That's not true because even when uh, neither the United States nor South Korea was engaged in uh, the dialogue with North Korea back in 2014. The Japanese government was actually meeting uh, the South North Korean counterpart in Stockholm. So there was an actual agreement. Unfortunately, these deals uh, didn't uh, produce good results. But good, well, now uh, the new administration is in power in Japan uh, and the Prime Minister Kishida has just announced his uh, uh, willingness in, uh, to meet with uh, Kim Jong-un uh, without condition. So we'll see what will happen. Um, just one uh, last thing, um, seeing the, what's going on right now, I kind of see the similarities between what was now, what's going on right now and what was happening in 2005 and 2006 period. When actually in 2005, the US imposed uh, financial sanctions on North Korea, but North Korea didn't respond you know, positively and said, oh, the, the US, you Americans, you must lift those sanctions first, uh, then we'll talk. The US kind of ignored North Korea for one year, more than one year. What happened at the end of uh, that one year also? In October, 2006, North Korea conducted the first nuclear test. So it escalated the situation in order to break the ice. So uh, we have to wait and see. North Korea is saying more or less the same thing. You lift the, uh, the sanctions first. So North Korea might escalate the situation and start uh, launching longer range missiles and might even uh, conduct another nuclear test. There is, so that's a bad news, but there is one good news. In 2005, the United States was uh, engaged or even bogged down in the Middle East, in Iraq, right? So it was not, the US administration didn't have enough room to spare or the resources to, uh, uh, to um, well, to pay, the US couldn't pay enough attention to North Korea issues. Today, the US is actually disengaged, not totally, but from the Middle East and has more resources to focus, uh, address North Korea. Certainly we have to address the China issue too, but so there are good news, bad news, and we see what will happen if we do our best and see what happens.
Thanks. Well, thank you, Michi. Uh, that was fantastic. In fact, all three of you, you've done a wonderful job of, of highlighting the challenge that we have as a panel, as well as that the international community has with the challenge. And we, we've got an hour now to kind of discuss this. Uh, and you've put on, on, on the table so many of the issues that complicate this uh, and that explain why, despite the fact that, you know, we first engaged this well over 30 years ago as the international community, we're still dealing with it to now. Uh, so it really is a, is a big issue. I wonder if I might start off a, a, a question series, but before I do that, let me again remind those who are watching this online live right now, when you received your registration, if you scroll down, uh, there are instructions as to how you can submit your own questions. Uh, I think it's via Slido, but there's a link in that process. We'd encourage you to, to, to react to the, the remarks by these wonderful panelists we have and let us know if you have anything specific that we can delve, delve into. In the meantime, I have a lot of questions. Um, and I want to start with the, the subtext, you know, how the international community uh, should respond to the North Korean threat. Because we, we've had some really good perspectives uh, from DC, from Seoul, and from Tokyo. And yet, the challenge faced uh, by the international community goes beyond the three countries representing the panel today. Uh, and part of that really does go to the international community. So, Sue, in, in your remarks, you, you, lock, you talked about some of the very specific limitations we have in our response. Uh, and one of the historic limitations in dealing with North Korea is because any response to North Korea had to also think about the implications for the international community or international nonproliferation efforts. Uh, and so there are some who might just say, well, it's a fait accompli. North Korea is a nuclear power. We should just recognize it as a nuclear power and move on and deal with it in a fresh new way. But at the same time, if a state like North Korea that has a, a demonstrated track record of, of you know, trafficking in international arms, of human rights abuses, of international criminal activity, of counterfeiting, et cetera, if that kind of state who is in violation of various UN Security Council sanctions, resolutions, et cetera, can withdraw from the NPT and then become recognized as a nuclear power, one begins to question whether or not the, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty has any meaning or whether the international community has any meaning in that regard. So I wonder if I could get you all to step back uh, and look at this from an international community perspective. You know, what are the implications of what's happening in North Korea for international efforts uh, to build the community to make sure that we have a safer world? So I know that's a big question, but deliberately it's a big question. Uh, we'll, we'll probably go maybe in reverse order. Why don't we start with you, Michita, uh, Michi, rather, and, 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 and get your, your sense for, you know, the international community response. Yeah, that's a very difficult question because, uh, unfortunately, uh, North Korea is a, well, in a way, it's a, uh, posing a global threat uh, by exporting, not only developing nuclear and missile, uh, missiles, uh, nuclear weapons and missiles, but also exporting uh, those uh, systems and even technologies. So it's a big uh, proliferator in a sense. So that's an international global issue. But unfortunately, not many countries face a direct uh, threat from North Korea, right? And the North Korea is uh, internationally, you know, it's not influential. Well, uh, it might appear on TV every day, but I mean, it doesn't influence international global affairs at all. 
So it's very difficult to engage or um, uh, keep international, maintain a strong commitment on the part of the uh, different countries outside this uh, Northwestern Asia region. And uh, in this, so that's a big challenge. And uh, well, we can start keep saying uh, we have to get together. Um, certainly, uh, what's important is uh, increase the awareness of the fact that this is uh, certainly, you know, military threat only in a regional or local context, but a uh, larger strategic threat to the international community. Right. Thank you. So, I'm yeah. done. One gun will go over to you. All right, all right. Um, well, there is a very uncomfortable fact or truth. That is, uh, it is, uh, I think, uh, impossible to denuclearize, completely denuclearize of North Korea. Because you see, North Korea is a de facto illegal nuclear weapon state. And there is no precedent in history that this kind of a de facto nuclear weapon state to CVID and at the same time, and if we failed, I mean, international community failed to denuclearize of North Korea, it can has a really huge impact on the MPT that is has started in 1968. So-called MPT regime is uh, very highly likely to collapse. You see in Korea, even we, I think you already know that the growing voice to nuclear armament, at least uh, some people, especially politicians, we are you know, entering this presidential election race and some of the candidates and they advocate that at least uh, bring the um, tactical nuclear weapon of the United States to the Korean Peninsula. And some people even mentioned that we have to um, prepare for the nuclear armament. So I think uh, this is a very huge challenge. And for not only South Korea, United States, but international community, whether we can maintain, continue to maintain the MPT regime or not. So I think uh, at this moment, we, I mean, South Korea, United States, and oh, even some sense China too. I don't think China wanted to dispose of the MPT regime itself. And it you know, can lead to nuclear armament of South Korea, Japan, and even Taiwan. So we have to gather together and to more actively pursue to denuclearization of North Korea. But unfortunately, I just, uh, when I make a brief, uh, my uh, the uh, remark, and it seems to me this denuclearization of North Korea is not the top priority of the, even international, the community's agenda. Uh, thank you. Sue, over to you. Yeah, so a couple of things. First, I think we need to stay aligned. Uh, you know, North Korea loves, loves to divide everybody. Um, um, on sanctions, it, it should not be prematurely lifted. Um, we need to maintain sanctions. If you remember 2017, this is one thing that President Trump actually did. Um, by late 2017, about 90% of North Korean exports were illegal under international law, right? And it's not just far-reaching US sanctions, it was nine major Security Council resolutions, right? Um, so it's on the sanctions front, we can work uh, together. Remember with Iran, uh, you know, it took three years of a, a lot, you know, sanctions and maximum pressure uh, before Iran had incentive to even just come to the negotiating table. So on the sanctions front, I think we can do um, globally, we can work together. On the deterrence front, I think, you know, at least with our allies, 
uh, Korea and Japan, there's more we can do uh, closely work together, integrating missile defenses, streamlining, intelligence sharing, all, all of that, enhancing submarine warfare, other steps as we can do. And then all of you mentioned counterproliferation efforts, which is essential uh, because North Korea is a serial proliferator. It has already come up, you know, it, it shared ballistic missile technology with Iran, Syria, other countries. Um, and so on that front, there's a number of things that we can do uh, on the counter proliferation front. And then I'll say lastly, with these measures in place also, there's a lot we can do in terms of information operation campaign um, to into North Korea, human rights, uh, highlighting human rights. This is something absolutely globally that we internationally we can do, like, like in South Africa, that kind of pressure on during the apartheid era. So I think, combination of these things. So, you know, I, I started out my whole briefing this, this tonight, my opening remarks talking about how our options are limited, um, but there are still, we can all come together to work on these. Uh, and there are a number of things that we just talked about that we can still pursue internationally. Now, obviously given their proximity to North Korea, uh, even before North Korea developed longer range intercontinental ballistic missiles, there was a direct threat to to Japan, there's a direct threat to South Korea, of course, um, um, and a direct th threat to US troops uh, based in both Japan and Korea. Uh, over the last decade, uh, as North Korean ranges and capabilities increase, obviously that has increasingly become a, a, a direct threat to the United States as well. Uh, going back to the question of the international community, however, uh, it, it might be useful to throw in a little bit of perspective from Australia, where I sit right now. Um, it, it, Australia, uh, has probably been more vocal and more active in its response to North Korea than any other country outside of Northeast Asia and the United States. Uh, and it, at first glance, that may seem kind of strange because it was only in recent years that Australia is even tangentially within the range of North Korea. We have the advantage of being down in the southern part of the, of the, the southern hemisphere. But having said that, if you look at it, it really is the international community part that comes down. So just to give some context, if you look at it economically or scientifically or diplomatically, in every respect, uh, if Australia decided to, they certainly, like South Korea or Japan, could be a nuclear power, could develop intercontinental ballistic missiles, and yet they've decided not to. Like Japan and Korea, Australia's decided to rely upon what we here refer to as the rules-based order, uh, which is not just economic, it's also security, is to rely upon an alliance relationship with the United States and that international system. Uh, the international system of the United Nations Security Council, of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, of the Missile Technology Control Regime. And so North Korea's actions fundamentally undermine that system. Uh, and so when the international community responds to North Korea, they clearly have to understand the implications of the impact on the international system. Because one gun, your comments actually highlighted the real fear, right? If North Korea ultimately succeeds, the result of that is a, is a much more concerning and much more unstable international security environment for all of us, for any, everywhere around the globe. Uh, would that be a fair assessment of your of how you view it as well? Any differences? One going yeah, over yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Because you see, the North Korea is pretty much different from the other de facto nuclear weapon states, such as Pakistan, uh, India, and Israel, because those three countries never signed NPT. But North Korea did sign the MPT and withdraw from the MPT. So that's a huge difference. So if uh, the international community 
allow the, the North Korea and acknowledge North Korea as a de facto nuclear weapon state, I think uh, that is total denial at the NPT regime itself. And then I just mentioned that it will, you know, instantly start with uh, the nuclear armament, uh, the uh, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, and all other countries. So, and that means that the, the, no longer we are seeing the rule-based international order and the so-called uh, uh, liberal international order is gonna be uh, very rapidly, uh, you know, um, See, out of sight. So I think it's a really huge challenge. It's not the, we all know that it's not the only for the Korean Peninsula and this uh, global agenda that we have to stop them. And Sumiteri, I think you are right. And we have to do, have a more, uh, you know, concentrate on this uh, economic sanction. And I see that there is a still lots of rooms to put the pressure on the North Korea. And also we are seeing the lots of these uh, loopholes and also the China is uh, Kind of intentionally not to follow this economic sanction. So I think in that sense, United States, I mean, back to the Biden administration, more actively pursued, and I think they do something. And I, I think they still have a room to do, to put the more pressure, the North Korea in terms of the economic sanction. But you see, I know it's very difficult. First of all, the South Korean government is kind of, uh, you know, kind of refused and opposed to any kind of additional sanction. Also China and Russia too. And also even South Korean government wanted to lifting up the, some of the sanctions. And so I think it's not easy to uh, have a coordinate uh, among the relevant country. Yes, I understand the situation, but we have to do something about the North Korea. Just on that point, just to follow up quickly, I do think this is a very important point um, because we have to be closely aligned, Washington and Seoul. Um, but on this front, let's be very frank. I mean, the Moon administration already wants to some sort of relax pressure. They're already looking because they only have, they have a limited time until March to make any kind of breakthrough with North Korea. They're already here. They're trying to push peace declaration and the war declaration, even though there has not been any kind of progress made with North Korea. And they are also looking to relax sanctions, not actually add additional sanctions. And depending on how the election goes in March, uh, there is a danger that Washington and Seoul are not going to be 100% aligned on this issue. Uh, if we're not, allies cannot be aligned. It's really hard to get it mobilized um, on the sanctions front. And we all need, we know that's step number one. We have to be on the same page. Michi, can I go to you on this as well? I mean, in the past, we've had at times of very close coordination between Washington, Tokyo, and Seoul, the, the TCOG, the Trilateral Coordination Oversight Group. At times, we've had yeah. some real fissures, um, and, and, you know, real disputes over simple intelligence sharing agreements like GSOMIA, et cetera. Um, can, right. can, you, can you give us an assessment of both the importance of and the current status of a trilateral cooperation by the three countries most directly impacted, Korea, Japan, and the United States on this? Sure. Um, we know, definitely understands the importance of uh, US ROK uh, Japan cooperation and uh, especially uh, Korea Japan cooperation. Because, you know, if you take a look at the types of the missiles, uh, as Wongon said, uh, that uh, North Korea has been launching, I mean, those are many of them are, or even, you know, recently, most of them are targeted at, the, at South Korea and Japan, right? So there is no reason for South Korea and Japan to get together and cooperate much more closely together 
uh, in dealing with uh, missile issues, I mean, addressing missile defense issues and other things. So, I mean, uh, one of the most important issues is that GSOMIA is a general secret, uh, security of a military information agreement, which makes it possible for Korea and Japan to exchange information, sensitive information, uh, without uh, worrying about leakage and uh, uh, more closely cooperate on uh, missile, missile defense issues. So, I mean, we have to be addressing those issues, uh, especially when, well, South Korean government, uh, Pr President Moon says that uh, he would like to engage more closely with uh, South, uh, North Korea. It's important. But in order to do so effectively, again, we need strong defense and strong pressure. Right? So uh, we have to, you know, Korea and Japan should be really working closely together. So let me now actually take this conversation and actually make it more complex, <laughs> if I could. Um, the international arms community, arms control community's attention for the last week has not been focused on North Korea. It's been focused on China. China tested a, a, a FOBS, a, a fractional, what is it, fractional orbital bombardment system hypersonic glider, which has all of a sudden sparked great fears of, of uh, a new international arms race and is kind of, um, you know, overshadowed the North Korea discussion, but it highlights a fundamental challenge. And that is, historically, if you look all the way from, say, end of the Bush administration, or even Clinton administration on, one of the fundamental tenets of U.S. strategy and via that Japanese and Korean strategy was international coordination and cooperation. You know, it wasn't sexy as direct negotiations with North Korea. It wasn't sexy like summitry in Singapore, right? But it was that, that careful process of making sure that not just Japan, Korea, and the U.S. were on the same page, but that we worked together with Russia, with, uh, with, with China, with the United Nations, with Europe, et cetera, in sanctions. Uh, in UN Security Council sanctions resolutions uh, in the international process. By any account, the broader development in, in China-US relations, and more importantly, the change in trajectory in China under Xi Jinping seems to make this issue more complicated. So I'm gonna ask the hard question, and I'll start with you, Sue. Um, is it possible for U.S., Japan, and Korea to work with China today uh, uh, in response to the North Korea challenge? I think it's very, very, very difficult because, um, um, you know, China, for the longest time, it was hard to get China uh, to do anything on North Korea. Um, the, but I was actually surprised. This is why I brought President Trump, actually, believe it or not, in 2017, under the maximum pressure, um, China did for the first time, really implement sanctions. And I think that was true because, I mean, Gordon, as you know, China is no war, no instability, no nukes, and in that order, I don't know what the rationale was. Maybe Beijing was actually spooked by all the war talk coming out of Washington. For whatever reason, they actually did more uh, uh, in 2017 than we've seen. But now, given not only the deterioration of US-China relations, so they have no incentive to help out. Um, North Korea-China relationship has changed. If you remember President Xi, I mean, Xi Jinping was not happy with Kim Jong-un, right? They didn't have a good relationship in North Korea-China, I mean, despite the close, you know, broadly close, but 
you know, Xi Jinping did not meet with Kim Jong-un. He was, there were unhappiness surrounding Chang Sung-tae's assassination, Kim Jong-nam's assassination, all the nuclear tests and missile tests. Xi Jinping only decided to meet with Kim Jong-un after Trump abruptly sh uh, shifted to a summitry. But now since 2018, they have met several times. China-North Korea relationship has also evolved while US-China relationship has deteriorated. And so now we are at this point where China is not really implementing sanctions. Maybe that doesn't, we have not seen that impact because of COVID period of last, you know, North Korea was the first country to close the border with China since January of 2020. Uh, but we know China is not really implementing sanctions and they're doing incentive to really help us. So you just brought out a, a very critical point. How do we get China when it was already difficult um, before to, to work with us on North Korea front? I'm afraid that they're not going to budge until North Korea returns to a high level provocation like an ICBM test or nuclear test. Maybe my other panelists uh, have other answer to this, but I'm not optimistic that we can get China to help us. So let me, Michi, let me go to you. You know, China was, was a very high profile issue in the most recent campaign uh, for the prime ministership in Japan. Uh, can I ask the same question? Do you think that uh, it's still possible to work with China in response to North Korea's threat? Yeah, um, unfortunately, um, I need to agree with uh, Sue on this issue. Uh, China has not been cooperating with us, uh, uh, you know, positively uh, on, for, for example, um, uh, sanctions. Um, Chinese, I mean, I talked about uh, ship to ship, uh, illicit ship to ship uh, transfer that uh, North Korean ships are engaging. The counterparts of those North Korean ships, most of them are Chinese, right? But the Chinese government has not been cracking down on them. Uh, North Korea launches uh, missiles from uh, mobile launchers, and uh, many of those uh, North Korea mobile launchers were imported from China. Oh, in addition, moreover, I'm uh, getting more concerned about the fact that um, the security on the Korean Peninsula and the security across the Taiwan Strait might be getting more intertwined. Why? Because now China is putting pressure on Taiwan, right? And uh, Unfortunately, if there is a crisis or a tension, rising tension on the Korean Peninsula, it can be good for China. Why? Because uh, South Korea, the US, Japan deal with North Korean threat, right, together. Japan and uh, the United States, hopefully with, uh, uh, together with South Korea, deal, deal with a uh, challenge, security challenges posed by, chi uh, posed by China. On the uh, across the Taiwan Strait, right? So if there is a tension on the Korean Peninsula, we need to divert our precious defense resources away from the, the Taiwan Strait to the Korean Peninsula, right? So in the worst case scenario, China <laughs> might decide to use North Korea as a tool, right? To uh, to divide us and divert our uh, resources. So I'm getting more concerned about that kind of uh, consequences. Well, that's uh, a very uh, frightening scenario indeed. Uh, one gone um, long before Australia was the target of, of China's economic coercion, South Korea suffered. Uh, South Korea's decision to deploy theater high altitude aerial defense missile batteries in South Korea in response to North Korea's growing threat led to some real direct targeting of South Korea's economy by China. Um, 
obviously in the current situation, the current government Seoul might be looking to get Chinese support for an interwar declaration, but is it, I'm going to ask you the same question, but given the complexity, is it, is it possible to work with China uh, in response to North Korea? Well, uh, not much different from this view of uh, Sumi and Dimitri, and um, it's growing intensely, uh, in, in, you know, growing the confrontation between United States and China is to make a huge negative impact on the denuclearization of North Korea, period. Because we are seeing that the China is 100% back up this North Korea's position. And then China, Russia, and North Korea, they are saying that lifting up the uh, the economic sanction is the first step to have any meaningful dialogue with the uh, United States. And Wang Yi, the uh, foreign minister of China, and he paid a visit in Korea, and he very publicly mentioned that the necessity to lifting up the sanction. And also, I'm kind of a worry about this upcoming Beijing Olympics, you see. And there is a very high possibility that United States and the close allies to boycott, politically boycott of the Beijing Olympic. But um, Beijing and China is a very, uh, you know, tried their best to bring both North and South Korean leader and have uh, some kind of a trilateral meeting or a trilateral summit. And there is a two a very important objective of Chinese government. First, it will show that their influence over the Korean Peninsula. And second, they, they are trying to make uh, Beijing Olympic as uh, like a peace Olympic. And problem is that the, our government and Moon Jae-in government has every, you know, actually at very willing to go there if Kim Jong-un decided to come to Beijing. So and then it can have a huge negative impact in terms of a uh, Okay, U.S. alliance. It reminded me the year 2015, then President Park Geun-hye participated the uh, the Tiananmen Moon, and it makes a huge shock to this Washington. So I need to be worried about that one. But overall, the relationship, the more fundamental relationship between China and North Korea, it's not they are the not you know a um, very close ally, rather. I call it the relationship between China and North Korea as a marriage of convenience. As Sumi Terry mentioned, that it's kind of a dynamic of a trilateral relations. It seems to me during the Cold War, and the North Korea is the, trying to maximize their interest between Soviet Union and China. Nowadays, I think North Korea is doing the same thing between United States and China. So I don't think uh, the United, North Korea has such a close relationship with China, rather using China for their maximize their leverage. So can I ask you a more specific question uh, from a South Korean perspective? Uh, there is, I've heard for years now, a growing concern um, in, in Korea that the window for unification is closing, that the, there is a scenario in which North Korea essentially just becomes a, a satellite state of China, uh, absorbed into China, taking you know, part of China in that regard. Uh, how, how, how serious is that concern in Seoul? Uh, and what do you think the trend lines are on that view, uh, that there's a real risk that you know, North Korea becomes essentially lost to China in the current environment? Well, it is true that a very recent survey among the South Korean people, whether they uh, advocate their you know, support the reunification or not, finally, we have a less than 50% of uh, people support the reunification. That's the lowest point for several decades, especially young people like the 20s and 30s. They have a huge shock by the last June's North Korean's provocation. They literally blew up the Kaesong 
legion of this, and that is really shock to the young generation. So they are not supporting this reunification, and they consider North Korea is not the one, the entity, one, the same nation, rather they are very weird country. And about the North Korea is becoming satellite state of China, I don't think so. That's not happened at all because the whole North Koreans uh, since the founding of their North Korea in 1948 and from now, the North Korea's top priority is not to, uh, you know, totally independent from the outside, including China. So I don't think there is any possibility that the North Korea choose to be a, a satellite state of the China. Um. If, if you'll indulge me, I wanted to kind of push the panel a little bit further on this, but I find myself in, in agreement. Uh, if, if we'd had the same conversation a decade ago, I think the view of China's role would have been very, very different. You know, uh, Despite being largely ideologically opposed to sanctions in any form, China ultimately did sign on to a number of different UN Security Council sanctions resolutions. They may not have been robust in enforcement. But there was a certain level of, of joint condemnation with North Korea. And at a point back under the previous Chinese leader, Hu Jintao, there was a, a sharp difference between, you know, Hu Jintao, modern Western business suit, trying to be internationalist and different, uh, and the North Korean leader at the time, which was, you know, it seemed completely anachronistic, out of place. Unfortunately, over time, it seems like China has become more like North Korea. Uh, and Xi Jinping is now dressing more like Kim Jong-un. Uh, and that, that really bodes, uh, I think, some longer-term uh, concern. Uh, look, um, I, I'd like to get to, to – I've got a number of other questions myself, but I want to get to some of the questions we've got coming in from the audience. And so, again, I'd urge those of you who, who uh, have access to it, there's a Slido function. It's on your registration email. Feel free to submit your questions. Please, if you could, give us your name and affiliation so we can get a set of, sense of context for the question coming in. But the first question comes from, from an old friend and a, a veteran uh, North Korea watcher uh, who's in Japan, uh, Richard Lloyd Perry, who's the, the, with the Times of London. Uh, Richard and I actually traveled to North Korea together back in 1996. And so it's good to get a question from Richard. Richard asks a question, given the failure of other approaches, what are the prospects for returning to engagement with North Korea along the lines of, of the old sunshine policy? Uh, and I'm going to go to you, Wangon, first, just because I know that's very much the topic of discussion in Seoul today, but I want to make sure we get Japanese and U.S. perspectives as well. Well, I strongly support uh, diplomatic means to deal with the North Korea issue, because even though I said that it's a very uncomfortable fact that it's impossible to fully, completely denuclearize of North Korea, but problem is that we don't have any options, and Sumitari and uh, correctly mentioned that is uh, out of option, but still we have to do some kind of diplomatic effort and endeavor. But problem is that North Korea is totally refused any kind of talk with South Korea. You all see that the Moon Jae-in government has tried their best for past almost five years to undivide love to North Korea and try to peacefully engage, um, you know, but still North Korea has totally refused any kind of meaningful talk with South Korea. You see, very recently, there's restoration of the communication line back and forth. And July 27, suddenly North Korea said that they are going to restore the communication line. But a couple of days after, because we already, you know, South Korea and United States has planned to have joint military exercise, they, they cut down this uh, communication line again. And then two weeks ago, the Kim Jong-un mentioned that restoring the communication line. And then after that, 
North Korea hasn't, you know, respond any kind of uh, the uh, talk with the South Korea. South Korea has, uh, you know, suggest this kind of talk. So overall, unfortunately, the North Korean policy, especially from the South Korean policy perspective, is a kind of a responsive policy. We cannot get the, uh, you know, uh, see, uh, lead this whole policy because usually North Korea is trying their best to control all the uh, relationship with uh, not only South Korea, but United States. So back to the uh, sunshine policy. Mm -hmm. Yes, we tried for this sunshine policy for past four years, almost five years. But I can say that it doesn't work at this moment. So Sue, you, you talked about the evolving kind of slowly evolving, I might say Biden kind of approach. Uh, any, any, any scenario in which you think that you can foresee the United States or the international community returning to a more pro-engagement uh, approach, sunshine policy 2.0? Well, well, first of all, South Korea certainly does, right? <laughs> President Moon wants to pursue moonshine policy because the North Korea does not allow it. Um, although it's hard to get it exactly like the sunshine, sunshine policy because I, it can't be just unconditionally giving to North Korea. Um, I think President Biden also the Biden administration is open to engagement, open to diplomacy. It's again, North Koreans were sort of saying, you know, you have to preemptively give stuff first before they're willing to return to talks. I also think, you know, we should not give up on diplomacy, but diplomacy and negotiations should be pursued on principles of like compliance, conditionality, um, reciprocity, right? Um, and then this is a really difficult part, verification. So. Realistically, you have to admit we tried it for three decades um, or more or longer. Um, so it's just very hard to agree on any kind of strategic blueprint that clearly this, you know, defines out of negotiation engagement. You know, what, what is our desired end state? What are our objectives? What is our requirements for each parties? Uh, instead of just having a vaguely worded statement that came out of the Singapore uh, and so on. I mean, that's, you know, and then history suggests that North Korea, we, we can engage with them, we can negotiate with them, and we might even have a, you know, interim freeze deal that limits nuclear weapons capabilities, maybe for a given period of time. That's the most we'll get. But I truly believe negotiations will ultimately fail over the issue of verification as, as it has happened over many decades. So we, we need to be prepared and we know that going in, even if we are willing to engage and pursue dialogue. Uh, Michi, over to you. Um, Prime Minister Kishida has, has very early on expressed an interest. You mentioned it, uh, a willingness to meet with the North Korean leader. Uh, does that presage the potential of a return to a sunshine policy? Well, that's not uh, going to be a sunshine policy, but uh, serious, uh, nuanced, uh, balanced uh, engagement policy, which uh, will be conducted from hopefully from the position of strength. And uh, good news, one good news I have uh, here is that uh, South Korea is actually great, doing a great job of uh, enhancing its uh, strike capabilities. Uh, when we talk about uh, missiles, we always talk about North Korea, but actually South Korea is doing a great job of uh, enhancing its uh, missile strike capabilities by uh, deploying, uh, you know, shooting for about 2,000 uh, crews and uh, basic missiles. And uh, recently, Kim, Kim Yo-jong, Kim Jong-un's uh, sister, complained 
why is the international community complaining about our missiles when they are not it's not complaining about south korean missiles right that was you know fascinating to me because north koreans are now getting more concerned about south korean capabilities and it's getting more upset so I think in time uh, we might be able to use this as a well, you know, we don't want to just trade uh, miss some certain number of missiles with their missiles, but uh, it, uh, South Korean missile capabilities might work as a bargaining chip or leverage uh, in the upcoming negotiation. So I, I think this is a one good news for us. Well, if I may, I have a slightly different interpretation or idea about this, just Mitch said, because it is true that South Korea, our missile capabilities are very rapidly enhanced because we you know, actually discard this missile guidance with the United States, the last May 21st joint summit between United States and South Korea. And so we have, uh, you know, South Korea can develop the uh, very advanced and top-notch missiles. And recently we are successfully launched even the submarine-launched ballistic missile SLBMs and also cruise missiles and all the other ballistic missiles. But there is a very huge difference between North Korean missile development and South Korean missile capability. That is, we are just conventional the missiles that could not match with the the nuclear missiles. I just mentioned that North Korea is trying to develop tactical nuclear weapon, nuclear missiles. It does not match the South Korean missiles, no matter how we have the advanced missiles. And problem is that North Korea is trying to bring this issue in so-called arms control frame. And just meet you raised that is so fascinating that it seems to me the outsider, there is a, some kind of arms race between South Korea and North Korea. But if we are talking about the arms race frame, and it can be a effect that justify North Korea's illegal nuclear weapon development. So that is one of the main objective that the Kim Yo-jong, even Kim Jong-un, bring this kind of, you know, criticize, condemn the South Korean's military build up. So we have to be very careful with that. Fantastic. Um, Michi, I want to stay with you for a little bit. We, we've got several questions um, in uh, on the, the question of abductees. Um, you know, one questioner, Brian Bridges asks, uh, can Kishida have a summit with Kim without some sign of North Korean movement on the kidnapped Japanese issues? And a, a similar question came in from a, uh, a researcher there at Keio University, how can we effectively prioritize the abduction issue? Noting that the Biden administration does focus on human rights, but seems to be unlikely to prioritize that. This has actually been something that has bedeviled numerous successive Japanese prime ministers. Uh, and even we saw that uh, in, in the last several weeks where Prime Minister Kishida uh, announced his interest in having a summit, but at the same time, uh, had to do that in the context of continu continued Japanese concern about the fate of those Japanese who have been inducted into North Korea. So I'm kind of hoping you can help us untie that knot. Yeah, um, when we say that we need to, we should prioritize the abduction issue, we have to distinguish two different means, ways of uh, uh, prioritizing the issue. One is to price to keep saying, well, we should uh, you know, talk about this upfront and uh, we need, we can't talk about nuclear missile issues unless this is uh, resolved. That was a sort of approach that the Japanese government unfortunately took in 2006, seven, you know, seven, eight. And as a result, uh, not only, you know, the abduction issue was not really addressed 
you know, despite the Japanese efforts to do so uh, in the six party talks and uh, no results, positive results uh, came out. The other, another approach would be to prioritize the result, right? Uh, by kind of uh, linking the abduction issue uh, in uh, uh, effect, effectively with uh, other issues, uh, the nuclear issue and missile issue, and uh, talk about it in a you know, kind of comprehensive way. Because we kind of know that the North Korea would like to uh, make uh, a lot of money basically out of this, unfortunately. And, uh, but uh, we are not going to provide uh, a big economic assistance to North Korea unless nuclear and uh, our missile issues are properly addressed, right? So by linking this, not rigidly, but in a way that would uh, maximize the uh, uh, expected result on nuclear, missile, and abduction issue, we'll be able to uh, prioritize uh, the abduction issue most effectively. Well, well, thank you. Let me let me step back a little bit here for this next part of the conversation. Uh, the abductive, abduct, abductee issue has been going on now for many, many decade, decades. Concern about North Korea's missile program and nuclear program now extends into the decades. Same with concerns about North Korea's human rights issues. Uh, for a, a long period of time, there was an assumption, particularly early on, that with the fall of, of, of the Soviet Union, with you know, the, the, the reunification of Germany, that it was just a matter of time, right? That, that time was on our side, that eventually North Korea would collapse, uh, and it was going to be the reunification of Korea that kind of solved these issues over the long time. I think today we probably have a very different view of that. Uh, but early on, Wangon, you mentioned your remarks uh, uh, that time was not on our side. I, I just want to, I'll start with Sue this time. I want to start with the question of time, right? Uh, who is, whose side is time on at this process? Uh, the longer we wait, you know, we know these issues are intractable and really hard to resolve. And, and this conversation today has been pretty sobering because we don't have the solutions. But does waiting make things better? Does waiting make things worse? Obviously, North Korea has its own challenges with COVID and its economy and the continued sanctions, perfect or not. Uh, we do have that broader relationship with China. Um, uh, whose time is side on? Sumi, we'll start with you. So you're not going to like my answer. <laughs> if denuclearization, if we're talking about denuclearization, I don't think time is on our side. Because as I've written in the Foreign Affairs article, I'm not saying we should give up on denuclearization. I'm, I'm, I'm all, all for all the policies we just talked about tonight, counterproliferation, defense, deterrence. But I think that we've lost our chance if we ever had the opportunity to stop them from becoming a nuclear weapon state. It still doesn't mean we rhetorically say, okay, you're a nuclear weapon state because those, that has consequences. Regional proliferation, wrong message, wrong states, million different reasons why we cannot admit that. But let's be frank, Kim is not giving up nuclear weapons. Uh, the only thing we can hope for, I'm not saying we should necessarily even go for it, as I said, is managing the threat or freezing the program that's realistic. We're not gonna get them to give it up. So time is not on our side in terms of denuclearization. That said, you know, 
this is why I'm all about getting information into North Korea, changing the, helping the people of North Korea, trying to change things on the ground, human rights campaign, information penetration campaign, because I truly believe the only way things will change if it's a North Korean, North Korean country change and a people demand change. And then you never know, there are things that could happen, right? I mean, Kim Jong-un is not a healthy man. We still have all kinds of unanswered questions revolving his health. Like we, we haven't even addressed that, but I mean, we still don't know. This is an unknowable thing. And his health is one of the biggest wild card that could lead to instability because they don't have a succession plan, right? We still have unexplained absences when he comes back, he's on a wheelchair, he, he has a, you know, marks on his wrist and mark on his back. I mean, we still don't know. So in the, in the intelligence community, we always use uh, the health as one of the wild card events that things could happen. So sort of that is just my short answer. Like in terms of denuclearization, I think time is not on our side. In terms of a long-term picture, it's not that time is on our side, but there are things that we can do trying to, to sort of plant a seed or help the people of North Korea. That's my honest answer. Well, uh, of all the sobering things you've said today, the, the reminder that for all of us that live in these <laughs> human bodies that time is not on our side is probably a sobering reminder for us too. Uh, Michi, I want to go over to you. Look at it from a Japanese perspective. Is time on our side? Yeah, time is not on our side, as Sue said, in terms of if you focus only on the nuclear issue. Uh, but, uh, you know, time is on our side because uh, North Korea keeps lagging behind, right? It's uh, living in the 19th century when we are living, you know, look at South Korea, you know, it's a uh, pop stars, uh, you know, uh, acting very well in the world, international community. Um, Japan is making a progress on this and that, you know, it's becoming more uh, sophisticated, uh, you know, mature society. US is, is very energetic, you know, leading the world. What's North Korea doing? And the North Korea has been trying to normalize relations with the United States in the past 30 years, failed. You know, what's the, the you know, um, uh, they, they've failed. So we must not focus only on nuclear issue, but uh, take a look at this issue more comprehensively and uh, take necessary measures to in order to produce good results as a whole, not just on one issue, although uh, nuclear uh, missile and abduction issues are important. I agree completely. What he now, said. And, and before I go to you, Angon, let me add to that. that. That's actually a very useful perspective because, uh, because North Korea remains so unique, shall we say, uh, we'll still have a lot of media coverage about the opening of a single hamburger restaurant in, in, in Pyongyang as evidence of how much Pyongyang is changing. Whereas, you know, in Seoul, there's probably a thousand hamburger restaurants that open every day and not a single one of those get any attention. Um, there's, so there's a broader. Well, there's another broader thing here, quite interesting to tie this back to Japan. Uh, a decade ago, there was great concern in Japan about a so-called Galapagos effect, right? Whereas, you know, Korea had been very international with its technology. Japan was of sufficient size that a lot of Japanese cell phone technology and other consumer electronics were, were developed for the Japanese people themselves and weren't as attractive internationally. Now, Japan has seemed to have turned away from that. It was only the last several weeks where I, for the first time ever, heard 
the term Galapagos effect, referring to the Galapagos Islands, right? Basically, evolution in an isolated, you know, con- you know contained system, right? Applied to China. Uh, and they were noting that, you know, if you look at the success of BTS or Blackpink or Korean dramas or now, you know, something like uh, the Squid Game, right? Internationally, Korea has kind of very much set itself in terms of global culture. And Japan has long done that with, you know, manga and anime and a whole bunch of other things, which are very tied together. Whereas they were noting that increasingly Chinese culture, Chinese influence, Chinese soft power was all inward focused. It was all about China uh, and not the external world. So that does give you some broader sense of the march of history and the diverging gaps in the economy, develop international influence. Um, but obviously, this question is most directly felt in Seoul, uh, where the trajectory of North Korea uh, is something I still think maybe it might be under 50%, but there's still a lot of Koreans that kind of hope for unification. Uh, and the question of, of history is, is not old, right? It's front and center right now. So one going your respects on is time on our side. Okay, I'll... I think uh, it's very difficult to, to predict the future, especially about the so-called collapse of North Korea, because uh, for the past three decades, uh, so-called collapse school has a wrong prediction. You all know that after just 1994, Kim Il-sung died, and many people are saying that within a, like the six months and a year, North Korea is going to be collapsed. And also another round uh, happened to the so-called arduous merge, the late 1990s, allegedly known that almost more than a million people starved to death. And then, you know, still North Korea is not the collapse at all. And finally, year 2011, and uh, after the, uh, Kim, Jong, Kim Jong-un got the power, and many people are saying that it's, uh, it's going to be a very unstable because he's uh, very young. And, and but we haven't seen any kind of instability of North Korea for the past decade, 10 years. So we have to be very careful. But overall, I you know, basically agree with that, uh, what Sumi and also uh, Mitch mentioned, that nobody knows what happened. And back in the, our experience in the sudden collapse of the Cold War, nobody knows that the Soviet Union kind of uh, voluntarily peacefully gave up their the hegemonic power. So that can th- those kind of things can happen in the North Korea, because especially we don't know exactly what happened to North Korea recently, especially after the January the 8th party Congress. And it is a very rare, um, not the common thing that North Korea, even though this very serious COVID-19 situation, they are doing some kind of uh, the uh, people's gathering and the meeting and com- uh, the uh, meeting almost twice a month. It's uh, gathering huge people. And then they emphasize two things. One is self-reliance. The other is ideological struggle. That means they do have uh, some difficulties. We don't know exactly how difficult it is. But so that's why North Korea is trying their best to consolidate domestically. And but back to the Gordon, uh, the kind of basic argument that whether North Korea is a possibility to open their society to the outside, I don't think uh, there is a very uh, slight chance that fully open the outside because North Korea is different from the China and Vietnam and other country that still maintain the socialist country, but open their the society, especially economy, because North Korea do have a South Korea. It's a very rival and we are the one entity for one nation for the past 2000 years. So I don't think North Korea can fully open up their society to the outside world. 
Well, let me ask you one final question, if I can sneak it in. Uh, we, we got something online from Hans J. Roth wanting to know how strongly efforts for unification depend upon the two Koreas themselves and how strongly they depend on broader trends, geopolitical trends in the international community. Uh, how would you weigh that? Well, I think both of them are the very important factors because the Korean Peninsula issue is not just a Korean Peninsula per se, because uh, about the North Korean denuclearization is a global agenda and also surrounding countries such as China, Japan, Russia, and even United States all are, you know, have interest in the, the Korean Peninsula. So we have to do both of them, trying to have a better relations with, uh, the, of course, North Korea and also see the, what happened the outside of Korean Peninsula. I think that's a very important thing. But unfortunately, from that perspective, the growing rivalry between China and United States makes reunification more difficult. So that's the another, you know, kind of a, you know, negative views about the reunification. Well, thank you, Ambassador Roth. We know that Ambassador Roth as a distinguished former ambassador who spent a long time in, in, in China and Japan as well. Uh, we're getting very close to the end of this. And, and I wanted to actually uh, uh, put a final question to, to all three of our panelists. Um, again, this has been a pretty realistic uh, and, and sobering conversation with a clear understanding of the challenges we're facing today. Uh, but we also have some opportunities, right? There is an upcoming presidential election in Korea. We have a, a relatively new prime minister in Japan. The Biden administration is obviously not that new, but consumed with a, a lot of, uh, of other issues right now uh, and hasn't set a clear Korea strategy. You know, we, we don't have a uh, a U.S. ambassador even uh, you know, uh, uh, nominated yet for South Korea. Uh, ambassador Sung Kim, so very capable, is also concurrently ambassador in Indonesia, a country itself that warrants a lot of attention. Um, and so if I could ask you all to kind of wrap up with your elevator speech. So given the difficulties that you've all described so very well, um, what, is, what are the one or two things that Japan, Korea, and the United States should be doing right now, given the situation you described. Because again, our, our subtext here was how the international community should deal with North Korea. Okay, uh, we know it's difficult. We know the prospects are not good. We know that working with China is hard. We know it's unlikely North Korea is going to give it up. So what should we do? And, and you've just got a couple of points to make. Sue, we're going to start with you again. So for... Korea, Japan, and the US, I really think the allies improving that relationship. Um, you were talking about opportunity, hopefully maybe um, in March, if it's so difficult now with the new administration in South Korea, that's possible. I think truly when, you're, when we're dealing with North Korea, we have to be united, we have to be on the same page. And that really starts with Korea and Japan also improving their relationship and then trilateral coordination. And then we can do all the things that we talked about deter, defense, missile defense, and everything else that comes with that. And then I'll just finish with my mantra on, on that whole having a long-term perspective that we just talked about. You know, um, I really think that's important because we get so wrapped up on just the nuclear issue and then we can get very pessimistic. But what we were just talking about earlier, um, I do think, you know, look at what McDonald's and Coca-Cola and all of this other things, soft power stuff also did once, you know, it helped undermine Soviet bloc and, and win the Cold War too. So I really think um, just that whole information, getting information into North Korea and having a longer term picture 
when we are dealing with North Korea is also something that we need to do. Over Fantastic. Time. We're on the express elevator now with just a couple of minutes. So real short, uh, one going to you and then to Michi. All right. I think uh, 2022 is a very important year because uh, at least we are, you know, kind of control the COVID-19. I think uh, COVID-19 is one of the, the most factors that, uh, you know, uh, to the, decide the North Korea's next move. So at least the uh, first half of North Korea, you just mentioned the South Korea presidential election. We have uh, the Beijing Olympics and all those things. And of course, uh, include the COVID-19 situation, North Korea will move. So I definitely agree with uh, Sumi. And then we have to have a very close coordination among the three trilateral, the Japan, United States, and South Korea, period. Right. Thank you, Michi. Yeah, so we always talk about, uh, I, I think what the Japanese government should be doing is to inform its people of what's, what we are doing, not necessarily what North Korea is doing. Well, North Korea, when it launches missiles, it's widely reported, everybody knows about it, but not many people understand the whole uh, uh, com complete picture of what we are doing to engage or pressure North Korea. So. You know, by doing so, we will be able to understand what kind of role that Japan might be able to play effectively in the context of uh, South Korea, US, Japanese uh, trilateral cooperation. And also we need to keep our eyes on what China is doing or how China might be using North Korea in, uh, uh, in its competition with the United States in a global uh, great power competition. Well, thank you. This is a rich discussion. An hour and a half goes by very, very quickly in this context. Um, one of the themes I draw from your final answer, is, regardless of what happens in North Korea, and it's so difficult to predict, whether it's resolved, whether there's a conflict, whether there's a collapse, whether there's another form of breakout, there's no question that Japan, Korea, the United States, and the broader international community have our interests best served when we're working together. And so while we may not be able to change the reality on the ground in Pyongyang, we certainly can change the way we work together. And that's a clarion call that comes out of that uh, challenge for our political leaders. Uh, thank you all. This has been a very rich conversation. Uh, let me note that you, all those who are watching this will be receiving a, a, an evaluation uh, link. Uh, we would very much welcome your feedback uh, on behalf of Nikkei, on behalf of the government of Japan. We appreciate your participation. I appreciate their support in holding this. Let me also note that the next in this series of Asia undercurrent uh, webinars will be held in November. It's gonna be focusing on economic statecraft, another very important thing, which we touched on several times today. Uh, but again, on behalf of, of, of Nikkei, on behalf of, of the government of Japan, uh, thank you to this wonderful panel uh, and thank you all for joining us today. We wish you all the best. Thank you.